Hello, everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff here with Economics Matters, the, the podcast. I'm delighted to have back for the third time Andrew Feziak. Uh, he's a, cons- a senior consultant at Black Trident Defense and Security Group. And uh, before that, he was has been serving as a journalist, Ukrainian journalist, uh, going back and forth between Ukraine and, and Warsaw, deeply embedded in the uh, in the in the country and in the conflict, and uh, Andre, Andrew, uh, sorry, uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us again. This is a very interesting time to come back on, given what just happened yesterday with Prigozhin doing an attempted coup, which was apparently just a feint in order to keep himself out of prison. Uh, and now he's heading back somewhere, and we don't know what's going to happen with his paramilitary group, uh, the Wagner Group, which I guess has been so instrumental in the war so far. So a lot to discuss, but let's start off, Andrew, if you could uh, kind of give us, uh, give everyone who didn't hear the first two podcasts your bio, brief bio going back to, uh, you know, I know you were born in the U.S. and how you ended yeah, up. Yeah. Canada. Okay, well, we'd like to claim you anyway. Uh, and yeah, give us the kind of the tale of how you got to uh, be where you are th- today and um, be reporting and and observing and working on the Ukrainian war and also uh, being a consultant with Black Trident. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Well, I'll try not to give you too much history about myself and a bio, since uh, uh, you know, as a historian, political scientist myself. Uh, you know, I, I talk too much if I start talking about history, but but in any case, yeah, I'm born and raised in Canada in just outside of Toronto. Uh, right now, I've been living in Ukraine for over 20 years, and uh, I'm back and forth between actually Kiev and Berlin. Uh, my family's in Berlin as refugees, uh, so I'm kind of back and forth. Um, I studied when I finished high school in Canada. The first time I went to the Soviet Union was actually 1985. Uh, since that time, I have not been in Ukraine since, uh, three times, actually. So it was 86 because of Chernobyl, 1992, 1997. Other than that, I've been living there or studying there or uh, visiting there, actually, for, you know, this, the whole time. When I finished high school in Canada, I actually went to study at Kiev State University at the Faculty of Journalism. Uh, so I studied, studied there for two years. It was the last two years of the Soviet Union. So it was fascinating to be there at that time. I saw it all you know, fall apart, actually, which reminds me a lot about what I see in Russia today today. Um, but in any case, yes, uh, then I returned to Canada. I worked, did I, my BA and MA at the Institute of Central East European Russian Area Studies, and then I continued to do a PhD at, uh, at York University, actually. So in any case, that's kind of my bio. Uh, again, last 20 years I've been living in Ukraine. Uh, we own also a, um, a media company, so we make like television shows and movies, And uh, but my real passion is uh, kind of as a uh, yeah, analysts on the countries of the former Soviet Union, especially Ukraine and Russia, the international relations, kind of, you know, geopolitics and that sort of thing, which is why I'm talking to you. Right. Yeah. So you're really the perfect person, as you have been before, in, in telling us, uh, keeping us up to date on what's really happening on the ground and, you know, uh, in the uh, in the air in terms of where, where things are going to be moving, given what just happened. So uh, describe kind of the events of the last uh, couple months bringing us up to yesterday in your, you know, from your perspective. Uh, take us back a couple of months and then bring us up to, to today. I think it might be okay. interesting. And I think you're especially interested in what happened in Russia with uh, Prigozhin and the, uh, you know, the rebellion or coup, whatever you want to call it. Um, look, I'll tell you this, actually, people who are from Ukraine, Ukraine, you know, experts from Ukraine on the situation basically predicted that if Russia invades Ukraine, it may well fall apart, actually. So this is actually something which was predicted because we can see the weakness of Russia. Uh, They invaded and, you know, they thought they would take over Ukraine in three days. And now we're at a point where they themselves are falling apart, actually. This is actually, it's not a surprise. It's its its a welcome uh, event for Ukrainians, of course, uh, but uh, it's, it's not actually all that surprising. I think the next thing you can expect is certain, you know, of these autonomous republics like Chechnya and some other ones, uh, the weaker Russia gets, the the more that there will be independence movements or something there. Uh, At the moment in Russia, and this is the sign of a weak state, there are over 30 
private military companies or call them what you what you like wagner right which is headed by Prigozhin, is simply the most kind of famous of them you know it's probably the most powerful it's the most famous of them but it's not the only one there's over 30 of them okay shoigu has his own one so the minister of defense of russia has his own one uh even you know the enough you know i mean they're gazprom right you know so the major gas company they have one too okay you know supposedly to you know protect their infrastructure and things like that but this is ridiculous i mean in a, in a strong state i mean can you imagine in the United States that you have all these different private military companies running around and doing things like within the United States, right? I mean, of course not, because the U.S. is a strong country, has a strong, it's a strong state, so this doesn't happen. But this does happen in places like Libya, Syria, any of these weak states which are falling apart, right? You get warlords, call them what you want. You can call Prigozhin a warlord, you can call him the head of this private military company, but this is what's kind of happened. So, so are these, just a quick question. These 30 groups, are they, uh, I mean, we know that the Wagner group was uh, quite substantial in size, but are these other groups as big? No, they're not. They're not. They don't have, uh, they're not, right? So they're not as strong, not as big. Again, Wagner is the you know, most serious of them. Wagner has people fighting in Africa. Uh, they now run gold mines and diamond mines and all sorts of things like this. So, you know, Prigozhin is actually a very powerful individual in that sense. He has uh, international influence also. Uh, these other groups do not. But I think they've taken, you know, a lesson from Prigozhin and stuff. Uh, but like I said, this is kind of the falling apart of Russia. I would call, you know, what happened... Uh, you know, yeah, the day before yesterday and yesterday, kind of the beginning of you know, a civil war in Russia. Uh, and even though it ended, you know, it ended yesterday, more or less peace, well, peacefully, sort of. I mean, there's lots of people who died, actually. I mean, they shot down seven uh, aircraft, like six helicopters in one uh, military transport, I believe it was. Uh, and in that military transport, there were at least 10, 10 Russian soldiers. Okay, so so there are people who died in this, of course, and uh, this is, I mean, horrible for Russia. But in any case, yeah, the, I mean, we're seeing the start of this sort of thing and the start of, of Russia falling apart, basically. So let me, ask you, uh, let, me, let me push on this. So 30 groups, the Wagner groups, the largest, there is a central military uh, in Russia. I mean, there is an army that's doing most of the fighting with uh, you know, uh, you know, invaded Ukraine and doing most of the defensive fighting at this point. Uh, uh, when you you know, when we saw yesterday that Prigozhin uh, uh, was taking his uh, forces from Rostov to Moscow, and he got pretty close, it seemed, and nobody seemed to be stopping him. What does this tell you about the Russian military? Well, I'll tell you this, 80 to 90% of the Russian military, which is about 400,000 people at the moment, uh, are fighting in, in Ukraine, okay? Uh, they're spread out along a very large front. They're in Ukraine. Uh, that leaves very, very few people within Russia itself, okay? And this is why Prigozhin, who planned this quite well, he could have made it to Moscow, I think, without any problems. I mean, the, you know, there were kind of, you know, checkpoints and stuff set up. But he would have made it through them. I mean, he he has twenty five about well, they say between twenty and thirty thousand fighters right now. Uh, they would have made it to Moscow. Okay, I'm sure they would have, and they probably could have taken over. I mean, nobody was going to stop them. We can even see that people in Rostov, the town that he did take over, were very supportive of him and his fighters. Okay, so this is interesting. People are scared to voice an opinion. People are scared to say something. But I mean, you know, if these guys were to enter Moscow, I don't think there would have been much to stop them so we don't know of course we'll never know but this is you know just a guess but like i said because most of the people fighting the russian army is fighting against ukraine uh we've seen other things where when finland actually stated they want to join nato the, the russians removed an entire entire uh s300 s400 you know anti-aircraft uh, defense battalion from the border of finland okay it showed that they're not scared of nato actually you know NATO, that they're actually probably encouraged by that uh, that finland joined nato to know that well nothing's going to happen there and they took that battalion brought it to ukraine so within russia itself they're spread extremely thinly you know so if something like this, you know, were, well, it did happen yesterday. I mean, you know, it stopped simply because Prigozhin probably, you know, who claims to be a Russian patriot and all this, I think he probably understood that for him to, you know, then go and take over the Russian capital and so on and so on. I mean, it, it would look quite bad. It would kind of go against what he's saying. Um, so this is kind of, you know, the understanding is that he stopped. 
but he did, he was not stopped militarily or because uh, you know he couldn't make it maybe i think he was maybe some sense was talked into him that uh, you know this just didn't look good on his part in any case so what he's now heading uh, to belarus with all his 25,000 men and or not do you have any idea? I don't think so. No, no. They, 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 I don't think that would happen. I think uh, Lukashenko would be extremely scared of that happening. So I think those men will be staying where they are. Um, one of the reasons that this began was because the Ministry of Defense of Russia wanted Prigozhin and all his men to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense of Russia. Now, Prigozhin didn't want to do this. I mean, he's got, you know, he has a major conflict with Shoigu, the defense minister, uh, and Gerasimo, the head of the, uh, the, the army staff and stuff so you know he he did not want to do this and he was this is kind of what led to it he claims that uh uh his rear base was actually hit by rockets uh by the russian army and this is what kind of you know finally brought this on but now i mean they're going to want to force these uh you know wagner forces to sign sign contracts with the uh russian armed forces so we'll see how this all works out because of course you know these men are, will now be considered you know I mean, you know, to have been, uh, you know, traitors and stuff like this. So I don't know how that's going to work within Russia. You know, are these men going well, to sign with the Russian armed forces? Rizogin from uh, from going back to Belarus and having a bullet put in his head or some. Uh, yeah, so. Well, the leading cause of death among the Russian elite is falling out of uh, windows right. from high buildings. So, right. you know. I, I would, uh, you know, I would be very careful if I was Prigozhin to, you know, be staying in any place with, you know, with the, with the window in a high building. So um, I, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm actually not, right? I mean, that really is probably the leading cause of death uh, uh, among the Russian elite. So I, I suspect that uh, he's in mortal danger right now. Uh, he must know this, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But. Uh, Usually, the Russian government, Putin, I mean, does does not deal well with people that he feels are traitors. Uh, they're either killed by you know poisoning, like Novichok or something, or by you know falling out of uh, yeah. all buildings, or in some way or another. You know, so I can't see it ending well for Prigozhin. So, why do you think Prigozhin, knowing this, uh, kind of backed down? Why did he back down? Uh, do you think there was some uh, threat? We're going to bomb you from high altitude and. Well, see this, dead. but well, I don't think so because look, uh, this is why seven aircraft were shot down because they tried to do that and it didn't work. Okay, so you know his forces did shoot down you know six helicopters and one aircraft. Um, so I don't think that threat worked for him, right? I think it was more that uh, he's quite popular right now, and this may be a move on his part, which is actually quite uh, intelligent because look, the Russian army is is in deep trouble in, in Ukraine. Um, his forces are the ones that actually had some success, you know, using human wave attacks and stuff like this, which is, you know, horrible, of course, uh, because, you know, I mean, his men were dying massively and he was even talking about this. But, um, you know, he may he will live to, you know, fight another day. And, you know, maybe he felt that, yeah, him backing away right now, he's still, you know, well-respected within Russia. He doesn't look so much like a traitor. He was, you know, I mean, the charge has been dropped against him. And, uh, you know, maybe that was his calculation, that if he went further, that he would be looked, he looked upon as a traitor. And he was probably convinced of that. That, that. I mean, that's my guess in any case. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions a tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I, Maxify.com. I see. Now tell us uh, how are, how the um, offensive or counteroffensive is uh, going in Ukraine. Uh, so it seems from the view of kind of Western media that things have kind of are moving, but very slowly. 
and that uh, Russia is putting up a tougher defense than had been hoped, and that there's a suggestion that nothing really can be achieved without uh, air support F-16s. Is that your sense at this point, or are things uh, better than that story? Right. Well, look, definitely if Ukraine had F-16s, had, you know, aircraft and stuff, it would, it would you know, it would massively help. I mean, the United States military does not fight any war without massive uh, air support, okay? Uh, that is actually the main thing, you know, when they invaded uh, Iraq and stuff like this, uh, you know, there was, I don't know, there, were, there, there was, I mean, hundreds, you know, maybe, you know, over a thousand air, airplanes and stuff. So, you know, they don't go into battle without, you know, massive air support. Uh, expecting Ukraine to do this, right, tying, you know, one hand uh, behind their backs and expecting them to do this is obviously, you know, not good. Uh, but, uh, well, you know, Ukraine has to do what it can with what it has. Um, for right now, what they've been doing is they've been probing the lines uh, to seeing where there are Russian weaknesses and stuff. So nobody's expecting right now. And, and I mean, you know, of course, the Ukraine side does know the Russians have been uh, building up defenses, uh, building up these dragon's teeth, as they call them, these kind of concrete, um, you know, pylons almost, um, you know, setting up minefields and so forth. But uh, the main force has not entered the battle. Okay, so the main force has not entered the battle. Uh, it's been probing attacks. Yesterday, as of, because of what happened in Russia, actually, Ukraine did attack on five fronts and rather successfully, okay? Uh, because, you know, Russia's in, you know, chaos and stuff. So, of course, that was a good time to attack. So this was, you know, welcome development for, for Ukraine. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the main force has not joined the battle yet, okay? So we'll see when that happens. This is, you know, obviously, there's no rush. I mean, you know, Ukraine has limited forces, limited weapons, I mean, which, you know, they has to uh, receive from Western countries. And so, you know, of course, they're not going to just throw this uh, into the battle immediately and uh, have it destroyed and that's it, right? So they're going to use it wisely. I mean, they've proven, you know, in the past that they have used, used uh, what they have wisely. Um, and they've used it kind of, you know, you know, totally in a different way, well, not in a different way, but I mean, to the, you know, it, it unexpectedly, let's say this, right, you know, unexpectedly. So, you know, when they, uh, when the, the last counteroffensive happened, and they took over, you know, large swaths of uh, Kharkiv Oblast and, uh, and Kherson, uh, that happened very quickly. And of course, everyone thinks that, well, it's going to happen the same way again, right? You know, but it's not, of course. As you say, the Russians have prepared, um, you know, they have their lines and stuff. But uh, I mean, whatever, it'll it'll happen differently, but it'll happen. It's already happening uh, slowly, but surely. And again, the main force has not joined the fight. Yeah. So uh, do you think the, uh, you know, these tanks that have arrived and armored carriers have uh, enough air protection to uh, protect them. There was this you know, initial foray of, uh, I think there was a Leopard tank that was blown up and maybe one or two armored, armored personnel carriers. Is this uh, worrisome from the Ukrainian side? Are they gonna hold back perhaps? And would be, let me put it this way, do you think it would be smarter for them to wait till they get F-16s before they proceed? I mean, as you said, this is you know, a long-term struggle potentially Maybe they should say, look, we, we're not going to put all this equipment at risk. Maybe it's time we should, uh, we need to have F-16s in a serious way. And and, uh, and so we can actually make headway and, uh, uh, and longer range missiles as well, I guess. So, uh, right, let me put it this way. I mean, is that your, anybody talking about that as a strategy, just. Well, well, put it this way, um, and they, you know, there are people who mention that, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, it would be good to have F-16s and all that. Um, I mean, Ukraine Air Force still does have, you know, helicopters and all sorts of fighter jets and all this, uh, you know, not many, but they still do. But the Russians also actually, you know, they're not... I mean, they have lots and lots, but they're very scared to fly over Ukraine territory. In the first initial days of the war, they did. Uh, they had lots of aircraft shot down, and they don't do that anymore. So they only attack kind of at the front. Uh, so where the front is, they can make some frontal attacks and retreat very quickly. Um, but that's it. The Ukraine side does the same. Um, so it would be beneficial, of course. But I mean, of course, we can see that the Ukraine side did start the counteroffensive. So they have started the counteroffensive. As for long range uh, weapons, so they do have storm shadows, right? And uh, storm shadows are actually very effective. I think uh, the distance is is uh, 250 kilometers, which I can't remember what that is in miles, but uh, hopefully about 180 or so. Something right. like that. Okay. So it's, it's, um, I think Attackham's, uh, 
you know, ours, they, they, their, their distance is something like 300 kilometers, right? But, but 250 is already not bad. And uh, it's a very effective weapon. Uh, so they have been, I mean, blowing up all sorts of things at uh, these long, longer distances, which has been extremely helpful. Um, so there are all sorts of weapon systems Ukraine has, has received, they're using them. Uh, it would be one, wonderful if they received attackums also. Um, but whatever, I mean, they, you know, like I said, they've started their counteroffensive, so they are confident, I guess, that they can do the job without the F-16s, or even if the F-16s show up later, I mean, you know, it'll be helpful in any case, but uh, uh, the counteroffensive has started. So whether, uh, so and I feel that, uh, you know, the main attack force will kind of uh, follow and, you know, we don't know when, but uh, it'll probably be, you know, sooner rather than later in any case, you know, I don't think it's going to be months away. In the course of your kind of analyzing and collecting information for your new job and before that, as you're doing reporting and analysis for uh, different entities, um, you must be coming into contact with senior members of the government. Do you sense optimism? Are they kind of cautiously optimistic, pessim? You know, where do you, where's the kind of uh, the not for quotation sentiment? Let me put it that way. Right. Well, I think, yeah, Ukrainians are, and, and you know, government officials and uh, the population in general are very, are very positive about what's going on. Uh, yesterday, you know, yesterday's events in Russia make it even more positive because we can see, you know, Russia's falling apart. And this is uh, something a lot, a lot of analysts don't look at the overall picture. They'll maybe look at just the military side or, you know, just the economy or something like this. Uh, and but if you look at the overall picture about what's happening in Russia, uh, you see that it's it's really really bad for them, uh, which gives optimism to Ukrainians. Of course, uh, yesterday was you know one of those moments. Uh, so um, most Ukrainians, the great majority, 80, 90 percent, uh, agree that Ukraine will liberate its land. We will liberate everything, including Crimea. And uh, so you know they don't they have no doubt about that. And uh, everybody understands that this is a you know. There's, this is a you know serious struggle. It's not going to be easy, uh, but it has to be done, and, and we will do it. Right? The, there is no other option. You know, the people that are living under Russian occupation are being brutalized. Uh, uh, there is a genocide going on there uh, within Ukraine, but I mean, especially in the occupied territories, people are being you know raped, tortured, and murdered. I especially feel bad for people in Crimea. Uh, who are, you know, like Crimean Tatars, for example, who are, you know, they're Muslim. And I mean, they, they've been brutalized throughout history by uh, various Russian regimes and uh, Stalin deported them uh, on every, you know, all of the Crimean Tatars actually uh, in 1943. And then, and, uh, you know, half the population died while they're being deported to Central Asia. So, you know, these people are especially uh, in peril right now. Um, and when Ukraine forces enter Crimea, I feel especially, you know, kind of you know, worried about them, actually, what will happen with them. But uh, in any case, yes. So we understand that, you know, the, the territory has to be liberated and whatever it takes, I mean, it has to be done. And whether the West gives us weapons or not, I mean, the struggle will continue. It's, you know, so whoever thinks in the United States or somewhere that, you know, if they stop giving us weapons, we'll stop fighting. I mean, they're extremely wrong. You know, even if it takes uh, bows and arrows, I mean, you know, Ukrainians will continue uh, fighting, continue to uh, defend themselves. Right. I mean, there, there is no other option. The other option is just, you know, to be taken over and uh, die. Right. So, you know, there is no other option. Are the uh, are the Ukrainians at this point? Is the Ukrainian military close enough to Crimea to with these uh, storm these missiles from the the UK? The storm missiles is that it? Yes, uh, storm shadow. Yeah. Can they can they reach Crimea from where the the Ukrainian positions are they? Uh, they can. Uh, as a matter of fact, just the other day, uh, the bridge in Chungar, uh, which is northern Crimea, it was destroyed. So that bridge was, uh, well, it was quite important, actually, for the transportation of all sorts of Russian you know, weapons and stuff uh, to the front. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, that's it. They can't transport anything through Crimea. They can. Uh, it'll just, it'll take more time. They have to go through another 
kind of the you know for for, for to another side actually to to transport them. So there there is another route. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, this is it. Just shows yes, that was destroyed by storm shadows actually. And uh, once they get close enough, uh, right now there there's no point just you know hitting the Crimean uh, the Karis Bridge right now because uh, it's still not operating. Uh, the the train the 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 railway section of it is still not operating. They're still repairing it. But once it's finished being repaired, I'm sure they'll hit they'll hit it again, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. I see. So, do you think the US, you you think that Biden and the is playing this right? I mean, he's really the team leader here. Do you think he's being too cautious? Uh, to I mean, he, he's kind of seems like he he's at the beginning he was very aggressive about organizing everybody, getting them all on the same page, sending help. He seems like he's providing financial help and uh, a lot of weapons as but. But he's, you know, on tanks, he's been behind the eight ball. Now on F-16s, he's kind of suggesting, okay, maybe. Why at this point are we at okay, maybe, as opposed to uh, let's help the Ukrainians win this war before all their cities are destroyed? Why why, why don't we have, uh, or do you fault Biden for not being more aggressive? Do you think he's a strong enough leader in this context? Well, uh, I, I will say it is extremely annoying, actually, not just Biden, but other Western leaders also that they're so they're being so cautious about giving Ukraine weapons. Um, look, Ukraine's proven now so many times that we can cross every single red line or you know supposed red line that the Russians have, and nothing will happen. There's nothing they can do, right? You know, uh, you know. You know, since our last pod, uh, talk with you in the last podcast, I mean, you know, uh, Moscow has been hit by drones. OK. And, uh, you know, in the area hit by drones was actually, you know, Rublyovka, which is, uh, you know, in some other areas, which which is where the elite lives. OK, so hitting right where the elite lives. All right. And what happened? What did Russia do? Nothing. Right. I mean, you was that a big attack or a significant attack or just it wasn't a big attack? But it was. But, but look, but it was it was only about 10 drones. But it, what it showed was we can hit them. OK. And it was apparently not, you know, the Ukrainian armed forces that hit them, but it were they were, uh, you know, Russian partisans, let's call them. Right. You know, but I mean, they're pro-Ukraine, of course, you know, and, you know, I have no doubt that the Ukraine side helped them out and stuff. So, you know, so they're the ones that launched this. But nonetheless, everybody understands that, I mean, they're, you know, they have, you know, relations with the Ukrainian side. So, but what did Russia do? Nothing. I mean, they can't, there's nothing they can do, you know. I mean, you know, we've hit now Crimea, all sorts of, you know, objects in Crimea, I mean, many, many times, you know, including, you know, this latest one blowing, blowing up the, the Chungar Bridge, bring, uh, blowing up the uh, Crimean, the Karachi Strait Bridge, okay. And what did Russia do? Nothing. You know, they launched missiles against Ukrainian civilian objects anyway. So, I mean, that's not the retaliation, really, because they would have done that nonetheless. So so there's nothing they can do. You know, they often even deny that, uh, that, that anything happened, right? And so this is extremely... Um, you know, annoying that uh, we've shown that, uh, you know, of course, then again, a couple, a few weeks ago, there was this attack from Ukraine to territory, when these, uh, you know, Russian pro Russian pro Ukrainian, you know, Russians entered Russia, took over a couple of uh, villages in a raid, and then retreated back, right. And they proved there's nothing Russia can do nothing, you know, and so uh, you know, what else do you want the Ukraine side to show the United States and Western countries that uh, we can do and Russia will do nothing. So the fact that, you know, I mean, Western countries and, you know, the Biden administration are so worried that, oh, my God, you know, the World War Three, World War Three. Well, listen, who's going to fight in World War Three, Russia and who else? Right. You know, Russia and Belarus. Belarus doesn't even want to fight. I mean, they're scared silly, you know, to enter this fight and they're doing everything they can, you know, that their forces do not get involved because they saw what happened to Russian forces retreating from Ukraine, you know, in the very initial stages of the war. They do not want to enter the war. Okay. Is China going to help Russia? Of course not. Right. What Iran? I doubt it. You know, nobody's stupid enough to help out Russia, you know, and, and fight with Russia. So what are we talking about? Where's this World War III? Yes, Russia has nuclear weapons, you know, but I mean, honestly, uh, I can't see that happening. Um, and I I think, you know, you know, they've been warned enough that that is not going to happen. You know, they're not going to use their nuclear weapons. Um, having As said you that, and I've discussed uh, Russia has lots of nuclear plants, one quite near Moscow, and Ukrainians could presumably bomb those fuel rods and expose people in Moscow to radiation exposure. So it's not like Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons itself. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, exactly. So, you know, uh, there is a worrying development, by the way, uh, now recently, as we all know, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant uh, located in, in the Rodar, uh, it's been mined, right? So the Russians have uh, explosives all over the place in that, uh, in that uh, nuclear power station. And it's extremely worrying because um, they may do something there, right? So uh, hope, obviously, hopefully not. But uh, but what's worrying is when the dam was exploded in Novakahovka a few weeks ago, the Western reaction was, I mean, it was, it, it was you know, obviously, it, it was just completely, you know, pitiful, really. Um, you know, certain, you know, new, newspapers like the New York Times, they basically, you know, came up with statements of, well, the Russians said this, the Ukraine said this, the Russians said the Ukrainians bombed it, and the Ukrainians say the Russians bombed it, and we don't know, right? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous that, the, 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 you know, that a newspaper like the New York Times and other ones also um, kind of just sat on the fence and not understanding who really did it. I mean, the Russians mined that dam uh, since the very beginning when they, when they took it over in March of 2022, okay? And so to think that the Ukrainians could have bombed it and would have bombed it. It's just absolutely ridiculous, right? You know, um, you know, Tim, what, what strategic advantage does Russia get from from uh, from mining the bomb? I mean, from from blowing up the, the dam? What's the advantage to uh, Russia? Well, the advantage was that they create chaos. They flooded uh, lots of land uh, further south, which is where Ukraine troops could have advanced across the river. So, I mean, you know, and then and just it's terrorism again, right? I mean, it's just more terrorism. Um, and it, like I said, it's it's really sad that uh, the West didn't react very forcefully to that because that now uh, tells the Russians that you know what you can blow up the nuclear plant and the West may do nothing again, right? You know, this is actually a repeat of the scenario where when the Russians invaded Ukraine in 2014, the West did nothing. Okay, they kept their eyes closed. They kept trading with Russia, especially European countries. Uh, the sanctions were you know pitiful. They were weak. Uh, you know, countries kept uh, you know talking to Putin and stuff like this. And I think that that allowed Putin to think that if he invades Ukraine and takes over in three days, everyone will close their eyes to it. I mean, you know, the Germans, uh, even one of their ministers even admitted so. When the Ukrainians asked him for weapons, I think it was the day before or a couple of days before the invasion, uh, he said, well, why would we give you weapons? I mean, you'll be taken over, you know, in a few days. And, you know, that's just a waste of uh, time giving you weapons, right? You know, so, you know, Putin was probably right, thinking that uh, the West would close their eyes. And so this is the, the serious matter now, is that uh, if they blow, you know, having, because the West did nothing when they blew up the dam, uh, maybe if they blow up a nuclear, you know, th this nuclear power station, the West will also say nothing, right? You know, I mean, this. so this is extremely dangerous. It's a d dangerous scenario right now. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA, or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must-read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, you'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. What, what would happen if that uh, power station gets blown up? What's going to, where's the fallout going to go? Is it going to go back to Crimea? Is it going to end up in Kiev? Uh, where where does it go? Well, this is the thing. It can go anywhere. It can go towards Russia, right? You know, it can blow towards Moscow? Russia. Uh, well, even Moscow, but I mean, further east in any case. Uh, so you never know. I mean, it just depends where the wind's blowing that day. Um, you know, I would expect that if, you know, God forbid they were to, were, were, they were to blow it up, that they would, uh, you know, wait for the day that it's blowing towards Kiev, of course, and, uh, you know, or further west in any case to contaminate uh, all of Ukraine and Western Europe. So, you know, so this is a horrible, horrible scenario. And I hope that Western leaders are uh, contacting, you know, Putin and, and the Russian government and, and making very forceful, uh, you know, giving you know very forceful opinions on what would happen if they were to do that uh just recently um 
little story. Was, uh, I've, I forgot who it was, right? In the U.S., uh, though, in the U.S. Congress uh, made a statement about uh, wanting to pass the law, whereas if any NATO country was contam contaminated by, you know, nuclear fallout, uh, that would be considered an attack on NATO. Uh, sorry, you can remind me who that was, right? Um, but in any case, and, and then that would be a very welcome development, you know, to let the Russians know that, uh, you know, don't dare do anything even close to this. I mean, that, that would be extremely important, uh, you know, and it would be better even to make that more forceful and say not just NATO countries, but, you know, even Ukraine, anywhere, you know, to if anyone were to blow up a nuclear power station on purpose, uh, you know, that, that you know, that this would be considered a nuclear attack, you know. Right. Uh, no, I agree with you. I think that is uh, a nuclear attack and uh, Russia needs to understand that that would be viewed as just equivalent to, to dropping a bomb. Uh, we now have, since we spoke last, we have Finland in the uh, in, in NATO. Uh, I guess that's a, a, a huge deal. Uh, and uh, I guess Sweden will probably be accepted at some point. Uh, Ukraine, a number of the NATO countries are talking about fast tracking Ukraine into NATO. The US seems to be on the sideline on that too. Uh, where do you see this? What do you see happening here? Well, I think Ukraine will become a member of NATO, you know, sooner or later, and um, it, it would be better that it be sooner. Uh, look, this war would not have happened if Ukraine were a member of NATO. It would not have happened. Okay, uh, Russia could attack, uh, you know, the Baltic states, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and they would they would be occupying those states by lunch hour. Okay, it would be simple. Uh, those states. Are you know kind of more of a pain in the side to Russia than Ukraine ever was? Okay, because they you know did not give citizenship to the Russian speakers, forced them to learn their local languages and all sorts of things like this, which Ukraine never did. You know, so those countries would be more welcome to a Russian attack than Ukraine would be. But why didn't they get attacked? Because they're members of NATO, right? And that's simply that that's it. And no member of NATO has been attacked uh, by Russia. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, Moldova, well, okay, in 1992, I mean, there's the war there where the Russians, you know, were deeply involved. There is Georgia, of course, uh, which was, you know, I mean, a few times actually attacked by Russia, uh, including, you know, the war in 1998. Um, and, you know, Russia makes threats against these countries, you know, because they're not members of NATO. And if Ukraine were a member of NATO, that never would have happened. I should hope that uh, once this war is over, uh, everyone understands that uh, Ukraine must be brought into NATO because it is the only way to guarantee peace in Europe. Okay, and Moldova should be brought in, and so should Georgia once you know their governments you know changes because right now they have a pro-Russian government basically. So you know, obviously, they're not even interested in NATO membership at the moment. But um, in any case, yeah, uh, Ukraine must be brought into NATO because the other option for Ukrainians is uh, you know you don't bring Ukrainians in NATO. The population population will demand some sort of security guarantees because nobody's going to go through what you know we we're, we've been going through right now, and the population will demand uh, a nuclear bomb. You know, so you know, do Western countries want Ukraine to be nuclear armed, or do you want uh, us to be members of NATO? I mean, you know, make a choice. It's it's actually I think that's a no brainer. Right? You know, it would be better to bring Ukraine to NATO, and you know, nobody should uh, you know kid themselves whether Ukraine can make a bomb or not. Uh, look, you know, Ukrainians, you know, have all the knowledge, uh, technology and everything else to make uh, a nuclear weapon. OK, so, you know, it will not be difficult. Ukraine is not. You said that the uh, told us, in a, I think, of maybe the first or second you know, first podcast that Ukrainians actually were the ones who developed uh, the, the Soviet nuclear weapons that have, were sent back to, to Russia, but the actual production occurred in Ukraine and I guess yes the, uh, as well exactly Pivden Mash or Yuzhmash in uh, Russian is the uh, design bureau and uh, plant which may, it was once the largest missile factory in the world actually and that is the plant which was making the ICBMs for the Soviet Union right the Satan rockets and so forth uh, and the engineers from that plant were servicing all the Russian ICBMs uh, made at the plant uh, in Russia and up until 2014. So the funny thing is, we don't know what uh, what the state of those rockets is right now. I mean, they might not even be functioning because, you know, nine years has gone by and, uh, you know, 
who's been servicing them we have no idea i mean you know because it were you know before that it, it, you know it, they were the the uh, engineers from the ukrainian plant so ukraine, so ukraine has this technology it knows how to make them it can make them i mean uh you know and if it comes to its own security they will find the money to make them right so you know do we know no whether do we know whether the ukrainian engineers who developed the these nuclear weapons and the icbms who were stationed in russia in russia at the beginning of the uh of this war in 2014, have they come back to Ukraine? Do we know what's happened with them? Were from from what I know, yes, they did return. The engineers did return. Uh, you know, I can't say 100% of them did, but uh, for the most part, they did return in any case. So, you know, um, but in any case, you know, that uh, you know, the Mash plant uh, design bureau. I mean, you know, I mean, it has it, it's it's massive, right? And it has lots of uh, uh, lots of people who you know know what to know. Well, where's what to that? Do. Where's that plant located exactly? It's located in Dnipro, in Dnipro, right, which used to be called Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, so it's the kind of the middle of the country, basically, kind of Middle East, uh, in the, the middle to the east, not Middle East. <laughs> and um, the, you know, what's, you know, famous about that plant also is Ukraine's second president, right, uh, Kuchma, okay, he was the director of that plant. Okay, so that was his power base there from that plant. And uh, yeah, he became the second president of Ukraine. And uh, so, you know, just an interesting fact there. Do you, do you see um, that Ukrainian society has changed? I mean, before the the war, uh, Ukraine was ranked in, I'm not sure how credible these rankings were, but as one of the more corrupt or one of the most corrupt uh, countries in the world. Um, do you see society as having transformed in this, uh, you know, as a result of the war and, and, the, and you know, do you, was it your sense that things were corrupt uh, at not just at the government level, but at the business level and that things have now changed? Or do you think it's still corrupt? Or do you think it was never corrupt? Or what, what Give us a response about that. Sure. No, Ukraine was definitely corrupt, right? But uh, look, you know, there's corruption in every country. And myself as, you know, a Canadian, uh, you know, living in Ukraine, uh, you know, and having a lot of experience in other countries, uh, you know, I, I'm also a citizen of Poland and France, by the way. So I, I know, you know, lots of things going on in other countries also, you know, from that sort of level. Uh, I can say that, uh, look, in the last nine years, a lot, there was a lot done to battle corruption in Ukraine, okay? A lot. Um, Ukrainians brought in uh, the Ministry of uh, Information Policy actually brought in this app and it's fantastic. I don't know many other countries uh, that have something similar. And in that app, um, it used to be that, for example, if you lost your driver's license, your passport or anything else, or if you just wanted to get a new one or renew it, um, it was very corrupt to get those new documents, right? Because, you know, you had to go, it would take forever. So you want to go give someone, you know, you know, give someone a bribe so they'll speed up the process or whatever, you know. But what they did was they came up with this app, okay? And in that app, you have all sorts of documents in there, a driver's license, your internal uh, passport, your uh, ex external passport, so like foreign travel document, it's in there, you know, your children's birth certificates, um, your you know, like, as we call it in, in, in Canada, social insurance number, right? So it's kind of, you know, the, the number that you need when you get a job, uh, you know, to pay your taxes and stuff like this. All sorts of those documents are in there. And it, it's fantastic. So it means, you know, if you forgot your driver's license and you're driving around, you know, the police will not give you a ticket. I mean, if you have, as long as you've got a smartphone and you've got that app download, which of course everybody does that has a smartphone, um, that's it. It's in your smartphone. You just show your smartphone and uh, you show the app. It shows that document. Uh, there's a barcode. It reverses. So, you know, it's impossible to kind of, you know, uh, to somehow, you know, pirate it or something. And that's it. I mean, it's fine. So which means, you know, if you forgot your driver's license, if it were before, you know, maybe the police would want to bribe because you don't have your driver's license. Well, it's almost impossible now. Right. I mean, so this has solved so many things, actually. In Ukraine also, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, almost anywhere you can pay by, uh, you know, bank card, bank card, credit card, which now, of course, uh, is all on your mobile phone, right? You know, so, you know, you don't even need a, a bank card. I mean, it's all in your- so The government you know, has records- for Apple Pay or whatever, right? You know, and so- The important thing on that is the government has records of receipts of businesses so they can make sure the businesses are paying, whether sales taxes, bad taxes, uh, income taxes, whatever it is. Well, exactly, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So look, uh, in Berlin, for example, in Germany, 
there's tons of businesses here. I mean, restaurants, cafes, you name it, which there's a sign in front which says cash only, okay? That does not exist in Ukraine, okay? And obviously it is cash only because they're skimming money off, you know, off the cash, right? I mean, that's how, you know, that's corruption, right? You know, that doesn't even exist in Ukraine. So, you know what? Um, there's lots of things I see in other countries. Uh, never mind, listen, you know, I don't want to talk about your political system in, in the United States, which as a Canadian, uh, we consider to be very corrupt, okay, uh, and unfair. So, you know, let's not talk about that. I don't want to upset anyone. But, uh, you know, so, you know, talking about, you know, Ukrainian politicians and stuff. Yeah, well, they're corrupt, I, of course. Yeah, but I wouldn't I object with you. I mean, I think the our system is uh, very imperfect, let's put it that way, uh, huge problems. We have these extreme uh, extremists of the, on the right and the left making decisions about who's going to be uh, who's going to be the leader of the country in the future, and that's why you have uh, uh, you know we're not getting uh, fresh blood, we're not getting uh, uh, new leadership, we're not getting people addressing our our fundamental problems. Uh, I would say there's a degree of corruption when you, for example, take our social security system and you say you're going to, which has got $65.9 trillion of red ink, and you say you're going to take it off the table and leave it to the next generation. Well, that's putting a huge bill into their laps. That's corrupt uh, in the yeah. sense we're letting older people off the hook. That's uh, so, yes, uh, corrupt, corruption is a you know tough word to define. But anyway, sure. it's good to hear that um, these things are happening because I think that's going to be a speed uh, Ukraine's transition into the uh, EU, and from there, I think we're maybe jointly into NATO. Something I, I've been pushing for. Uh, do you see any? Um, uh, do, do you do, do you have any sense of uh, how this offensive counteroffensive is going to? I mean, is there a way through uh, these uh, barriers that the Russians have erected uh, that doesn't involve massive? loss of uh, lives of the Ukrainian, uh, on the Ukrainian side and loss of equipment. Uh, let me put it this way. Do you see any evidence or have you heard of any evidence of the Russian troops being demoralized to the point where they would pick up and leave as they have in other Russian wars, right? We, World War I, yeah. the, the, the front collapsed, right? Sure. Uh, not, in World War, not World War II. Uh, I mean, it did initially, but then there was a counteroffensive uh, the Russians fought basically, you know, without Russia, we would probably be dominated by Hitler or his uh, descendants. Yeah, sorry, Larry, correction. Not without Russia, without the Soviet Union, you know, uh, and, and a part of the Soviet Union is, was Ukraine and, uh, you know, another 14 republics and, you know, 15 republics altogether, which included Russia, right? But Ukraine also, right? You know, so I would please ask that everybody and your viewers in the United States you know, understand that it wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union, and that included a lot of Ukrainians. Nine million Ukrainians died during World War II, including my entire family. My uncle died, uh, he was 19 years old, he died in Auschwitz, okay? Um, and my other uncle, he survived two and a half years in Buchenwald. Uh, everyone in Ukraine has a, a similar story, right? Ukrainians massively paid for that war. The, the war happened on Ukrainian territory. It happened far less on Russian territory, you know. And so uh, Ukrainians also, you know, massively fought within the ranks of the uh, the Soviet army, uh, and were the ones who, you know, were you know leaders in liberating, uh, you know, I mean Poland and uh, then you know you know. I mean, beating the Nazis and stuff, right? So, so it's a big, big mistake to say it was Russian. This is actually what Putin wants people to think that it was Russia, and then someone owes Russia or something like this. It was not Russia, right? It was the Soviet Union, uh, which included fifteen republics, right? Um, but this is a lie that actually the Russian government wants to spread right now, right? That uh, you know that it was Russia. You know, somebody owes Russia a favor, right? I and mean, nobody owes Russia a favor. I mean, you know, it was the Soviet Union, which included Ukraine, right? You know, and Ukraine is suffering again. You know. Like it during, did during World War II, uh, it's going through another genocide, right? This time perpetrated, perpetrated by Russia itself, right? Question, how financially secure do you feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. 
Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. So, I see. Okay, well, I appreciate that uh, correction. And uh, But let me go back to this question of, do you see any demoralization of the Russian forces? Is there any evidence of that? I mean, there's, there, you know, they have all these apparently very fearsome trenches and everything's mined. Uh, getting there, but they're also in these trenches, I presume, mm-hmm. subject to bombardment. So the question is, you know, anybody getting up and leaving? Right. Let, let me, can I, can I, I'm just going to go back in history, just tell you one little thing, right? You know, when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, actually, um, there were a lot of demoralized people that did not want to fight. And this is why initially the Nazis were able to capture so many people. I mean, they literally captured hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, Red Army, Soviet Army soldiers and stuff. It's because they didn't want to fight. People were demoralized because of what had happened, especially people within Ukraine with the Holodomor, right? The, you know, famine, genocide and stuff. And so they were not willing to, you know, fight for the Soviet Union. Later, when they saw what the Nazis were doing in Ukraine and how they were, uh, you know, committing their own genocide, then, of course, you know, it was different and people understood that uh you know the nazis were worse than the soviets so you know they had to liberate their territory but back to your question actually so it's just to say about you know also even in world war ii there was that situation where people were demoralized in the very beginning and did not want to support the soviet regime right uh but but let's go to uh, nowadays right um there's been lots of instances of uh russian soldiers uh, new recruits not wanting to fight, uh, you know, going AWOL, um, you know, even shooting at each other. Uh, initially, Prigozhin's uh, Wagner troops, uh, they were, you know, they recently, just a few weeks ago, they were they were shooting against, uh, you know, re- Russian army troops and they even captured a colonel. And you probably saw this. It, they made it, you know, they put it out on YouTube and stuff. But this Russian colonel who started apologizing and stuff. But this is, I mean, this is just pathetic, right? I mean, they, they captured a Russian colonel from the Russian army i mean this is again you know just part of this uh you know of of russia falling apart when things like this happen but yes there have been many instances of uh russian troops fleeing uh leaving their positions going awol and stuff what the russians have done to to, you know they've learned a lesson from world war ii where the nkvd you know the secret police would stand behind russian soldiers soviet soldiers and shoot them in the back if they retreated and this is exactly what happens today, is that uh, they've got, uh, you know, Chechen troops, for example, who will shoot uh, in the back uh, anyone who starts retreating. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, Wagner's troops, uh, a lot of who were, you know, hardened criminals, actually, and released from jails so they could fight, um, these people had to advance in human wave attacks. And they'd be, I mean, just dying one over the other, you know, falling dead on top of each other because, you know, they had no other choice. I mean, you can't retreat because you'll get shot. So, you know, you have to go forward. So, you know, this has happened a lot, actually. It's happened a lot. And it will happen more and more. And, and uh, when the main wave of the Ukraine counteroffensive happens, expect this to happen a lot. Okay. And uh, with what happened yesterday, you can see that, uh, the, the, you know, Russia is extremely weak. And now this will cause people to think about, you know, which, uh, you know, what is right, what is wrong. Prigozhin made a lot of interesting statements about why the war began, how it was, you know, based on lies, and all sorts of other things, which are food for thought for a lot of people in Russia. And they heard him, you know, what he had to say, they've now blocked him from making statements, of course, but, uh, but it's quite interesting what he came out and said, uh, because actually, what he said was true. I mean, you know, it was based on lies, why the war began. And, uh, you know, there was elites making money from this war. And uh, there's lots of things, interesting things he said, in any case, you know, so this will now cause a lot of, you know, kind of confusion and chaos in the minds of soldiers fighting at the front, which will ask themselves, you know, why on earth am I here? Why am I fighting? For what am I fighting? I'm not fighting against Nazis. I mean, Prigozhin even said, there were no neo-Nazis in Ukraine. There, you know, I mean, there are there are some, but you know, but he said this, there was no neo-Nazi threat or something like this. So, so this is interesting. I mean, what he said, I mean, and of course, Russian soldiers are going to ask themselves, why am I here? Why am I fighting? You know, and why am I going to die for for what am I why am I going to die? You know, for what? Right. I see. 
So any prog prognoses about, uh, you know, what what's going to happen in the next few weeks? Uh, any inside information that, well, that wouldn't, you don't want to share anything that's obviously a military secret, uh, but uh, any sense of whether this is going to, you know, be a really slow slog over the next year or whether we might see something happening dramatic next few few months? My, my guess, well, look, I mean, the main, you know, force of the counteroffensive will, you know, will uh, attack, you know, within the next few weeks, most likely. Okay, I don't think they're going to wait for F-16s. Um, so that that that'll do a lot. I mean, like I said, they, they've been having probing attacks. But as of yesterday, on five different uh, parts of the front, they've attacked and quite successfully. Okay, so we'll see how fast that goes. And that's so not how, the main force again. You know. How much, when you say successfully, uh, was we're talking about a kilometer? Are we talking about 20 kilometers? What, what no, not, not 20 kilometers. And, and, and even then, we don't know exactly. I do know around Bakhmut, it, it was more than a kilometer in any case. Okay. So that's not bad. Given that, uh, you know, Wagner's, uh, you know, Prigorsen's Wagner troops, all they could do was, you know, take over a few meters a day, you know. And in the end, they never did take over all of Bakhmut, by the way. They claimed to, but they didn't, right? And so now, I mean, even while he was claiming to have done so, Ukrainian forces were already attacking successfully from the north and south of Bakhmut, okay? Um, and now, you know, even more so. So really, you know, they never really took over Bakhmut. Uh, they claimed to, but they didn't. Uh, which is also, by the way, pathetic because, I mean, certain, you know, publications like the New York Times, okay, it, it keep repeating this lie that they took over Bakhmut. They did not, okay? So, you know, this is, it's unfortunate. They, they listen to the Russians and they repeat those lies. And that's really, really unprofessional. So, you know, uh, it's very sad. But um, on all sorts of that's other- That's why we're talking to you, not somebody from the New York Times, by the way. Sorry, you're, you're glad you're talking to me? That, not that's why we're talking to you and not somebody- from the oh, New, right. New York Times. Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I expect that uh, the, I mean, we'll see how far th this particular counteroffensive gets. Uh, you know, I doubt that, uh, you know, the entire front's going to collapse and then Ukraine will, you know, head towards Crimea and take over all of Crimea and all of uh, Donbass and all that. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in the next, uh, you know, few weeks or something like this. However, um, I feel that, uh, you know, by the end of the year, first few months of next year, this war will be largely over. Again, what happened yesterday is very telling, okay? Russia is falling apart. Then uh, the reason, you know, if Russia was winning this war, what happened yesterday would not have happened, okay? But they know that uh, things are going extremely badly for them. Uh, the Russians are lying. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting that Putin had was forced to come out and talk about uh, what was going on yesterday. He had to actually come out and say that, uh, you know, that these are traitors and, uh, and you know, this the motherland is in uh, peril and stuff like this. And, you know, before that, he was saying, oh, everything's going according to plan. Everything's great. Everything's going according to plan. We're beating back this Ukraine counteroffensive, you know, all these lies. Um, by the way, you said a little bit, um, uh, you know, in, during our conversation today, you mentioned these leopard tanks, which were blown up and stuff. It's interesting because Russian propaganda took those few leopard tanks, and there was, I think, a couple of Bradleys there too, and they showed that you know, that destruction from a whole bunch of different angles and pretended that it was at different places in the front, okay? So it's interesting that they had to lie even about that, right? I mean, it's inevitable that, of course, there's going to be tanks destroyed, Bradley's destroyed, and all sorts of other weapons destroyed. I mean, this is, yeah, of course, it's a war. It's a war. A war is going on, right? You know? But uh, it's the numbers, of course, and how successful the Russians are at it that, that matters, you know? And they're extremely demoralized. They've been demoralized for a long time. And what happened yesterday will be even more demoralizing for the Russians, for Russian troops on the fronts, who will be saying, um, you know, that their country is falling apart. I mean, no, everybody understands what's going on. They understand now that, uh, you know, everything that's happened during these last few months, raids on Russian territory, attacks on Moscow, attacks on Crimea, attacks on Belgorod and stuff like this. They can see that the Russians are losing and they're losing badly. You know, I mean, you know, there's a joke in Ukraine that, uh, you know, of course, the Russians always said that they're the second, uh, uh, you know, they're the second largest uh you know strongest military in the world right well the joke now is that they're the second strongest military in ukraine right you know the ukraine army being the strongest right so you know so you know that's the joke of course uh ukraine's have a very good sense of humor so we you know 
it's one of the ways that Ukrainians, even throughout history, have been able to get through all sorts of tough periods, you know, with our sense of humor, right? So, you know, but anyway, um, yeah, so I, I strongly feel, and I've said this before, uh, I strongly feel that uh, by the end of this year, we will see major change, uh, you know, so you think collapsing and the front collapsing, all sorts of things, because the more and the more weapons Ukraine gets, the stronger it is, the Ukraine military, the stronger the push, the faster this will end. OK, and the more lives that will be saved. Uh, you know, and, and so this is important. It's important that Ukraine gets all the weapons it needs. Right. And it's important that the West stops being so so petrified of everything. I mean, you stop being so scared. I mean, you know, I think Ukrainians have proven enough that uh, you can attack Russian territory and nothing's going to happen. Nothing. Right. You know, so I don't know why, you know why you know you know the the us and western countries are so scared you know they they don't want ukraine to use western weapons on russian territory i mean come on this is ridiculous right i mean the russians are shooting at us from their territory you want us to do what you know not shoot back and this is ridiculous even according to international law ukraine has the right to defend itself and shoot against russian territory where they are shooting against us right you know so this is just ridiculous that they're you know tying the hands of ukraine's behind their back and expects us to fight this way you know so ridiculous well, I guess I guess maybe the U.S. view is, or the argument would be, uh, if the weapons are used defensively. So if if it's to to stop um, a missile coming from uh, you know being fired from Russia, you know if you if you knock it out, I, I don't know the, whether the U.S. would actually object or just say congratulations. My guess is they'll say at this point, congratulations, well done. Maybe that was just early rhetoric to get the other, everybody together to, um, to, to, bring, to pull everybody together. So uh, anyway, anything else to add? Uh, we'll certainly well, have- I'll say just this, by the way. Yeah, Millie, for example, right? Um, he made this statement kind of aimed towards Ukrainians. Uh, it was a few weeks ago, I think. And he said that, uh, yes, I mean, you know, Ukraine should be careful, World War III, World War III, because it would, it would, because it would happen on Ukrainian soil. Right. I mean, for Ukraine, it's like what, you know, happened on Ukraine. So what do you think is happening right now? I mean, Bakhmut, if you look at Bakhmut, Marinka, Avdiivka, you know, Mariupol, these places are leveled worse than they would be if a nuclear weapon hit them. Right. You know, so do you really think that kind of will scare us? Right. The fact that, you know, nuclear weapons, again, we don't believe that they're going to use them. Right. Um, you know, Kirill Budanov, head of Ukraine military intelligence, who's fantastic. I mean, in his predictions and you know, just how he is and stuff. I mean, he strongly believes and uh, that Russia will not be using the nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Right. Again, you know, uh, causing a terrorist attack against a new nuclear power plant like the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is something else. Uh, but using an actual nuclear weapon? No. Right. You know, so but, you know, what Millie said was, you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous because our cities are leveled to the ground as if they were hit by a nuclear weapon. So what is the difference, right? Those places are places are depopulated. The buildings, you know, they're leveled, right? There's nothing there. Nothing is standing there. So what is the difference that a nuclear weapon hit it or or, or that, uh, you know, it's destroyed the way it is with conventional weapons? I mean, yes, okay, you can say, well, there's no nuclear fallout. Well, okay, that's great, right? You know, but how are those places going to be rebuilt after this? You know, I mean, you know, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrendous there. It's horrendous, you know? So, you know, he's not scaring us to say, oh, we're scared of World War III. I mean, we are in World War III in Ukraine, as far as we're concerned, the war is on our territory, right? You know, so to make statements like that is, you know, a bit of a slap in the face to Ukrainians to say, you know, do you not know what's going on in Ukraine right now? Do you not see the destruction, you know? And, you know, give us weapons, you know, we'll deal with it, right? Uh, you know, because obviously, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard too many statements from US experts and military leaders about how, you, you know, Ukraine is going to be taken over and three days and this and that and all sorts of you know things which are just obviously wrong and not true right you know um you know i remember statements by you know by administration saying you know if ukraine's invaded we will provide ukraine with uh weapons for partisan war warfare right you know i mean in the very very beginning that was a slap in the face right i mean that was that was really i mean did they really expect the ukrainian armed forces to fold right uh within a few days that you know that russia would actually be able to take over i think they did i think million, you know they did on andrew we, we did, I think everyone in the West and, you know, is a, Ukraine has done an absolutely amazing job. The, the people uh, have shown that they are probably the toughest, among the toughest fighters in the world, if not the toughest. And um, yeah, and, you know, you're a great, exa great example of the tenacity of the Ukrainian people to uh, continue through these terrible, uh, this terrible situation and continue to victory. So, 
God, Godspeed to you, to Ukraine, and we'll have you back soon. And uh, hopefully we'll have even better news, but certainly the news is much better than it was the first time we talked and the sure. second time we talked. So so Larry, are, can, can I say one last yeah. thing, actually? Sorry, do, I just want to give an example. Uh, do, do I have a minute? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. OK. I want to give you one example, which should have shown actually experts and the US military and the government actually what would happen in Ukraine and what the Ukrainian army was and so on and so on. When uh, the US started getting out of Afghanistan, um, you know, US forces and all sorts of Western forces remained on the territory of Kabul airport, okay? And they did not leave it, right? But there was an episode there, you can Google this, right? Where Ukrainian forces uh, were sent in and they were the only ones who actually, and this is Ukrainian military counterintelligence, okay? Uh, and what they did was they actually marched through Kabul, they went and they saved all these journalists who were waking, working for the Globe and Mail, a Canadian newspaper, actually, okay? The Canadian side asked them to do it, and they did it. And they were not scared to do it. They marched through Kabul, right? They grabbed those people, put them on buses and stuff, and they brought them back to Kabul airport. They were the only military that did that. Everyone else was scared out of their pants to enter into Kabul itself and leave the airport. The Ukrainians did it, okay? You can Google this, you'll find it, okay? You know, of course, you know, the Canadians can consider them heroes and stuff, but this should have been an example of what will happen in Ukraine, okay? The Ukrainians have guts, courage, and they're not scared, right? You know, and especially when it comes to Ukraine being invaded, okay, never mind what happens in Kabul, they're going to defend themselves and they're going to fight, okay? So this was just a great example, which everyone should have looked at and said, that's what they are, and that's what's going to happen. You know, if the Russians invade. Well, I think that's a good way to to uh, end this for the for now. We'll be back to to talk with you uh, soon, and take take good care, and God bless you, and God bless Ukraine. Thanks very much, Larry. Great talking to you again, and I hope to talk to you again soon. And all the best to you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.